Welcome back, everyone, to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I am joined this week, as always, by my lovely co-host, partner in crime, Dr. Scott. Hello. Hello. It's Dr. Scott here, back from Alabama with a banjo on my knee and about (laughs) an extra five and a half pounds from the unbelievably delicious food that I literally ate my way through my hometown. So, so you were good. able to get out of the closet that you were in last time, wedge yourself out of that and get home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although like we were talking about before we started recording, the the funny thing was, is that my sister-in-law's closet was probably one of the best sound environments ever. And I had oh, a little, totally. you know, I had like this, this small Yeti mic that's been discontinued, but it's easy for travel. And I was like, oh, is this going to work? And our sound, I think we've even had people commenting on how good the sound was last time. I know. Very I funny. know. Yeah, she had a huge closet, actually. So nobody was wedging their way out of that. No, I could get up and walk <laughs> out. But this one did... I'm going to have to pull myself out of. During the recording, did somebody walk in and grab something? That was her. Or did I imagine that? Because no, I thought I saw was... in the background and you were just talking. And I'm like, I think oh, somebody's in there. Look, she did, like I was so into talking. It wasn't I felt movement at my feet and I thought. I thought, it was, I thought it was the cat. And I looked down and it's my sister-in-law's like big shiny head. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. So we are coming down to the wire of 2021. We have, this will probably be the second to last episode. Yes. Because we're going to be releasing this in December, beginning of December, and then we'll have another one for you. However, we are only going to have one Get Vocal this month because this coming weekend, sorry guys, I signed up for some firearms training. So I'm doing that all weekend long. I will be on the range at four o'clock. So yeah, we're going to do one on December 18th and it's going to be great. We're going to do our regular time four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And we are going to be joined by Nick and Brandon from the Tennis Podcast. So much fun. We we did a get vocal with them earlier in this year. And we are going to bring you lists of our favorite non-traditional holiday movies. So get thinking, Dr. Scott, of what your list is. And we can all argue them and bring some fun facts to the table and talk about why we we love them. Yes. I have some, I already have some for the list, which is yeah. Can't me wait. Too, me too. Uh, I definitely know my number one, top number one. So, well, don't give it away now. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you guys will have to join us on December 18th for that. You also still have time at the release of this episode to join Patreon if you have not, because we are doing a virtual holiday party on December 10th. So, please sign up. If you want to just sign up for the month and join us, you can do that. Yeah feel free and hang out with us for a little holiday get together. I wish we could be like in one big place all getting together, but everybody is all over the place. We have some folks that said they're going to try and join and they're in New Zealand and all over. So this is the best part about virtual platforms. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And other exciting stuff Uh, yesterday. Big news. Big Big news. News. I hope everyone subscribed and everyone is downloading the new satire true crime podcast, Santa Maybe a Criminal. So it dropped on Black Friday. Episode one is out. It's called The First Day of Christmas, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Did I mess that up? Okay. (laughs) And it's going to be a blast. So it's going to be a little... If you don't want to listen to all this bummer stuff during the holidays, I get it. You might want to 
just put on all the fun holiday stuff. And this is going to be a good one. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. I mean, I, for one thing, it's almost feels like a family event, a family affair, because Jason has been so wonderful in including all of us asking us to be part of it. And it's also, you know, him being from Savannah, Georgia and an Alabama fan, me being from Alabama, there is so much regional Southern humor in it. I don't know (laughs) if people will get it. I mean, they'll get the stuff that's not not right. regional, but like he just used a couple of terms that I out loud laughed as I was going through the car wash yesterday. It was very funny. <laughs> it's really great. And it's just going to get better. And I hope maybe there can be a platform where we can all get on and talk about it and talk about how this idea was dreamt up. We'll have to save that, but that would be a lot of fun. I think to that's do. a great idea. But we also have another big announcement and congratulations to Jason who has been just absolutely integral to upping our game as podcast hosts with his sweetening and editing and support of our work. He and his lovely wife have a new child that dropped almost at the same time the first episode of Santa (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Yes, congratulations to Jason and his wife and their son and their new son. So yes. it's very exciting. Yeah. He's got a lot going on. He's, he is, he's a hard charger as we oh, say in goodness. law enforcement, right? Yeah. He's the hardest working man in podcasting right now. I think <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> step aside, pain, Lindsay, Jason Esri is the hardest working man in podcasting. <laughs> okay. All you right. just made me, made me snort a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. So there you go. I will not comment. Let's get into our episode. Yes. So when you were traveling back, back last what couple weeks ago now yeah we i i did get vocal without you reluctantly and it went very well i had miss lenora claire on oh, and that's so great we had a really great show talking about advocating for victims in the media and how that should be and can be facilitated and how they can be supported. And she started a consulting company that is doing that work. But in telling her story about being a multi-crime survivor, including stalking, she used the term erotomania, which you and I have talked about in a couple of episodes, our stalking episodes, probably our intimate partner violence, intimate partner homicide episode. And the audience in our chat room was just like, we need to hear more about this. So here we are. We're doing a full episode dedicated to erotomania. And I think this is something, like I said, we've mentioned, but to drill down, I, I feel like we have put together a really good show for you guys today. There's a lot of information about real life cases, about how it's portrayed in the media, as well as the background research, the historic research and the statistics that are out there today. So trigger warning for this episode, we're talking about matters of gun violence, homicide, stalking. So if any of those are triggering topics to you, just make sure that you listen with care today. Yes. And thank you for that. I think it's important that we put these trigger warnings in, especially for anyone like Lenora Claire, who is the perfect example for people who have been the target of unwanted attentions, whether it be related to erotomania or not. So let's dive in. The term erotomania causes an individual to have the delusional or false belief that they have a secret or known admirer. So this admirer is usually someone famous or at least from a higher rank 
culturally, societally, hierarchically than the subject, like a celebrity, a politician, or even in today's world, a a D-list social media influencer, right? Or a podcast host. Seriously, because we, we know we have colleagues who are in this genre of podcasting who they themselves have become targets, unwanted mm-hmm. targets of erotomania. So while information and diagnostic criteria about this disorder are kind of pretty stable, the development of research over the past 20 years shows some really interesting contrasts and tangents. And just to give you a heads up of how this episode will go, we will be referring back to diagnostic criteria throughout the episode because it's important for you to be reminded as you're listening to some of the examples that we come up with. So the client is usually female. The client or subject is usually from a relatively financially modest background, having somewhat of a limited educational success. So not somebody that we really see as a high achiever. And they likely have a minimal to moderate level of sexual experience. Erotomania can be either primary or secondary. Secondary erotomania occurs under the umbrella of what we call comorbid, and comorbid means simultaneously occurring disorders. This particular one usually presents with psychiatric disorders like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, as well as organic disorders like dementia arising from age-related senility, meningioma, which is, you know, related to meningitis, or chronic and severe alcoholism. So a woman or a female subject who has erotomania usually fixates on older men, whereas males with erotomania usually fixate on younger women. But in the case of women, their target is perceived by the subject to be of a higher social status and are usually married or otherwise unavailable or out of reach, as in the case of like completely unknown celebrity status or equal levels of power, okay? So it's generally someone who really is unavailable and very unlikely to be in a relationship with the person who is the subject. As far as the research has shown over the past 20 years, the life period that female clients can experience erotomania is during their late reproductive phase and while they are either single or in unstable relationships. Now, that's not a blanket assumption, but it shows the majority of the cases. So are we kind of thinking maybe there's some stressors going on there at the period of time that they're at in their life? If they're single, if they imagine themselves being married with children... I would think so. I think it's it's very interesting that you point that out because what I'll say from the research articles that I was reading, it seems like the writers are being very careful Mm. about not nailing down a reason for it. They're just saying, hey, all we know is there's a correlation between late reproductive phase. So that is a lot of stressors for some women who maybe have been acculturated or have been desiring having a family. Right. Maybe that has something to do with it, but I I couldn't find anybody that was willing to say that definitively because there may be other things going on that are just hormonal that may cause it. Now, it is interesting because we do have some more research coming down the pipe in this episode, which is more recent about chemical indicators and chemical instigators of this disorder, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. So now in contrast to women, males who experience erotomanic fixations, their objects of fixation are primarily younger and sexually attractive women. So again, typical sort of male representation or male expression of a disorder, always going for somebody that's way more attractive and in their own way, like the female example, completely out of their league. So in saying that, what we're kind of indicating is that I guess they're looking at standard 
culturally accepted views of what is sexually attractive to most men, but what also is common along with the other expression of female subjects with this is that their target, the men's target, also appears to have influence in the community at large. So as well as being younger, sexually attractive, the women are also thought to have some sway in the community, like what you would see with an influencer or somebody that was holding a respected position. Okay. So classical descriptions of the onset of this delusion is described as abrupt, like happening almost overnight. It's very quick. It can happen out of the air with the subject never having had a fixation like this before, which is interesting because how are you going to predict it? It means it's going to be very, very hard to predict in the community. The object of the fixations are believed by the client to be the first ones to declare his or her affections, which may or may not be returned by the client. I'm using air quotes when I say the client. So the individual who has as the erotomanic fixation believes that this person is expressing their feelings first. Right. And they may be all hands off of like, oh no, I'm not, I don't know where this is coming from. How could this work? But then their delusion pushes that belief farther and farther to where they then fall into this assumed relationship. Very, very interesting in how that happens. It's important to remember that the erotomanic delusions tend to be chronic and ongoing despite the object's clear denial denials of any such love. So in the cases that I've been involved with in threat management, you can sit down and show them notated letters from attorneys or mm-hmm. legal documents, cease and desist. This person wants no more to do with you and they absolutely will not believe it. Yep. They absolutely will not believe it. So the other term, which is not so nice for primary erotomania, it's called old maids insanity. Lovely. Because there's another expression of it as well that doesn't seem to be related to schizophrenia, but can be related to the onset of dementia or senility in older individuals. There's a really wonderfully written and sad chapter in a book by the same name, Love's Executioner, and it's authored by psychotherapist Irvin Yalom. It's like a required reading for almost anybody that gets any kind of counseling or therapy degree. He's written a great deal. He's a brilliant, brilliant writer, brilliant psychotherapist. And I think when he was writing this chapter, He probably understood that this is what the diagnosis was, but he was meeting the client where he could do work with her so he would not fight the delusion, Mm -hmm. but he tried to work with it. He wrote about this elderly female client who became delusionally obsessed with her former therapist. And while the fixation was really badly mismanaged by that young and inexperienced therapist, it becomes obvious later in the story that that clinician himself had pretty significant mental health issues. And the client misinterpreted the supposed affair and felt like it was significant and lifelong and that he was, you know, even though it was long over, he was going to come back to her. And so an example like this without other comorbid diagnoses would be classified as secondary erotomania. Sure. Wow. That's really interesting. I did come across an article that talked about two cases. It was published in 2021. I'll reference it on our website in our reference section, but it claimed to be the first two case studies, which of course are documented, right? I'm sure there are many before this, but of same-sex erotomania. And both of the women who were featured as the case studies had erotomania with the object of their affection being their female therapist. 
therapists. So it was, it was very interesting and just how it, it was secondary for, I think both of them, obviously they were coming there with other issues going on, but how chronic it really was. Like you said, even when they were faced being treated by other therapists, sometimes just after one session that this erotomania emerged, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, and you can kind of understand that. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, it would be easier for me to understand. Well, I mean, it just is what it is. It's not a matter of understanding. We, we have to look at things holistically and see a big world of phenomenology and personal experience that can express in so many different ways, but certainly within the confines of a relationship, a therapeutic relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, you're supposed to be developing and practicing intimacy and authenticity in that process. So of course there's going to be the likelihood that signals can be misinterpreted. Yes. Yes. So the person with erotomania believes that the particular person that is the object of their affection is communicating with them through a variety of different means. So if the person's known to them in real life, even from afar, even let's say they don't know each other by name, but they cross paths, they work in the same place. One person works in a store that the other one goes into. The person with erotomania can believe that the other person is communicating with them, sending them body signals, certain types of glances, et cetera, and then start to read into that. And then if the love interest is, let's say, a celebrity or media personality whom they are never actually in the room with in real life, they can still think that they're the recipient of special glances through the television or communications via social media, even to the degree of obscure changes in the person's clothing or hairstyle or makeup or the way that they hold their body posture or arrangement of objects in the scene, I guess I'll say, are what the person with erotomania believes are indicators that the person is communicating with them. So this is what we see with the celebrities, whether they're they're speaking to the camera when being interviewed and there's a certain phrase maybe they say that the person then picks up on and thinks is a message just for them. Sometimes they even believe that they're receiving telepathic messages to communicate desires or in some cases what we call ideas of reference. As interesting and far out as telepathy sounds, ideas of reference in themselves are even just as fascinating. We've talked about it before in other episodes, but ideas of reference are the experience of an individual believing that insignificant events or coincidences have an explicit meaning in that person's life. Within erotomania, these events are tied directly to the individual with whom the client is fixated. So an example would be sitting in a coffee shop, hearing the music play in the background and believing that your admirer is sending you messages by choosing that particular song that you're hearing. It's not that they themselves are singing the song and they can hear the voice singing. No, it is listening to the lyrics and interpreting that incorrectly that your object is sending you a message through the lyrics, or even if there's no lyrics, maybe through the rhythm or the the Mm -hmm. note combinations. The interpretation by the fixated individual is defined by the fixation that they believe their admirer has. So I'm sitting in this restaurant or this coffee shop at this moment. This song is playing right now, and it's for me because it was chosen for me as a message. Yes. Yeah. Wow. All right. So just to recap here, if we were to diagnose someone, the diagnosis would be delusional disorder with erotomanic type. 
The incidence of delusional disorder is rare. So that's estimated to be about one to three cases per 100,000 in the population with a rhodomania subtype being even rarer than that. So just to give you guys an idea. But again, the features are generally going to include the delusional belief of being in an amorous communication with another person. There's generally no hallucinations present. And if there are... They're not very prominent and they usually relate directly to the theme of the delusion. So some may be hearing things that other people aren't hearing, seeing the, the glances, not misinterpreting a glance, but seeing something that's actually not really there could be possible, but generally they're not present. It can occur with both males and females, and the object of their fixation is generally going to be at a higher social or professional standing. And the belief that the other person was the first to fall in love, and that triggers that sudden onset that you were talking about, Scott, where this just like picks up and starts seemingly out of nowhere for people. And just with all delusional disorders, generally they are going to lack insight into their own delusional thinking. So this makes sense why some of these numbers might be low. They might not be coming to seek their own mental health treatment. It usually lands in our laps when there's a complaint sort of from outside or they become so agitated with whatever their delusion is that they're really coming to manage their anxiety. It's not that they think there's something wrong with the way that they're thinking. They also completely insist on the accuracy of their perception of love by the other person that they're fixated on. So erotomanic delusions are prominent in the thinking of people described as what we call celebrity stalkers or obsessed fans. Yeah, it's really important to remember that with any kind of delusional diagnosis, it is next to impossible to pry into that delusion and pull it apart. In fact, if you pry too hard, if you push too hard, then your efforts can be folded into that person's delusional belief system. And then you've lost all connection that you had with the person and you have no therapeutic alliance from which to work. It's very, very difficult. In a review of 48 cases of erotomania, a study showed that other comorbid psychiatric disorders were generally present that aggravated the delusional beliefs. So this can account for the span of behaviors from relatively benign to harassing and menacing actions. In the study, it was noted that from the perspectives of the victim and the criminal justice system, the similarities in behavior patterns and actions are more significant and require more focus than relying on various and different diagnoses. So basically they're saying, we're not really sure what it's coming from. It could be related to schizophrenia. It could be Mm -hmm. related to a traumatic brain injury. It could be related to drug use. From a legal standpoint, we're going to focus on the behaviors because that's how we're going to assess whether or not there's a risk. So research shows that behavioral actualization of their delusions, while it might be initially benign, it places the risk of violence in a higher risk category despite our inability to actually predict with complete accuracy. Yeah, this is, as we got into this, it seems so clear cut, but remember it can be primary or secondary. It can be primary where it's standalone. Right. That's it. It's the only thing the person's ever suffered with, or it could be in conjunction with some of these other disorders that you're talking about. So let's back up and talk about where we even get the term erotomania. As with most scientific and medical descriptor terms, we know that the names generally come from some sort of Greek or Roman mythology, which Scott is very good at educating us (laughs) on. So the name comes from the Greek god of love, Eros, 
who was the son of Aphrodite. And in Roman myth, he was Cupid or Amor. And while Mama Aphrodite was associated with love, lust, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation, Eros was understood to be more mischievous and the disobedient god of love. Eros was fiercely loyal to his mother. I, I kind of smell a Freudian thing happening. Just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. But he was known to be the deity who quickly instigated the flame of love in both humans and gods. He ignites the flame of love in the hearts of gods and men armed with either a bow and arrows or a flaming torch. I just always start laughing because somebody did a great meme on Twitter that, that describes all the soldiers fall on the ground into an orgy. Cupid says, oh shit, I'm sorry. These are the only arrows I have. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so That's does one he have way different to end arrows a for different yeah. things? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, the historical researcher that made Iranomania its own phenomenon was Gaetan de Clarembeau, for which Clarembeau syndrome was named. And he obtained his medical degree in 1899, and then he became an assistant physician at the Special Infirmary for the Insane, which was in France. And by 1920, Clarembeau was the head of this institution. He was the first person to describe de Clarembeau syndrome as a distinct disorder in 1921. He distinguished it as its own standalone phenomenon and not a symptom of something else like schizophrenia. So he was really parsing this out. And he was also a photographer and his passion for photography resulted in thousands of photos of patients being taken between 1914 and 1918. And this was really seen as a significant contribution to the study of mental illness by essentially preserving images of patients at the institution, which wasn't really done before that. And this was part of a, a larger research project involving individuals exhibiting symptoms of hysteria. So I'm guessing he was doing a lot of this work and he had a lot of female subjects because we're talking about being treated in a mental institution in the 1920s for hysteria, it was probably pretty prevalent to him that this was something that was going on in women. However, he was not the first individual to observe the phenomenon of erotomania as it had been theorized and described in various forms going all the way back as Hippocrates. And then Freud around 1911 commented that this disorder was a defense mechanism, of course, of course. which... <laughs> <laughs> which was employed by the sufferer to avert homosexual urges or instincts, which in turn results in enduring feelings of paranoia, denial, displacement, and projection of love, I'm assuming. I, I, that's very interesting. I mean, once again, I do think that from a psychoanalytic perspective, erotomania is, is a fascinating subject to mm -hmm. see just how, you know, the idea of power and sex versus annihilation. But in this particular quote, I mean, that's avert homosexual urges or instincts. That just makes no sense to me. But if anybody out there is more psychodynamically oriented than me and can give us an explanation of that, that would be great. Yeah. Sadly, Clarenbeau died by suicide by the use of a firearm in 1934. He really played a great influence on many prominent European mental health professionals in the 30s and 40s. And I couldn't find any explanation about why he killed himself, unfortunately. Very sad. It's always sad, but he contributed a lot. Moving on to the idea of treatment for this. Again, we've said 
fixed delusions are very, very hard to treat. And while antipsychotic medications can sometimes turn down the pressure or the permanence of the delusion, shifting it into sort of a a memory state, long-term psychiatric hospitalization or incarceration has not been shown to be a consistent solution. So there's a lot of things where we talk about, you know, when I'm doing a quick evaluation and looking at a long history of a person's behavior in the community and their history of treatment and mental illness, one of the things I'll do in my brief evaluation is state what I believe at this time of my interaction with this individual, what is the prognosis? And it'll be prognosis good, prognosis unknown, or worst case scenario, prognosis poor. Right. And generally with people working like this, the prognosis is pretty poor. I've had the experience of working with psychiatrists at the VA consulting on cases that have come across my desk and they feel the same way. You know, they Mm -hmm. say that they can give an antipsychotic medication like Risperdal that will do that. It'll turn down the noise a little bit, but if the person's not compliant with the medication, then, you know, it's not going to have much long-term efficacy. And generally what I was reading was that it will turn it down in the sense that the person, if they've been acting out, will stop the behaviors, the the risky or unsafe or, I don't know, concerning behaviors, I guess, especially if it's towards someone else. But they will still believe the delusion ultimately. Right. So maybe what's happening is the medication is allowing some inhibition mm-hmm. as opposed to disinhibition that is experienced in the full expression of the disorder. Yeah. So there are some non-pharmacological treatments that have shown a little bit of efficacy. There's ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. It's not the old shock treatment. It is done when people are under anesthesia. It's a lot more gentle. It's been very successful in treating depression, which there also is historically a link between depression and the expression of erotomania Mm -hmm. as well. Supportive psychotherapy, family and environmental therapy, rehousing, risk management, and trying to treat the underlying disorders in the case of secondary erotomania. So if there is that comorbid diagnosis, sometimes treating the things that are easier to treat may actually make the erotomania go away. Electroconvulsive therapy may help in the temporary remission of delusional beliefs. Antipsychotics are going to help turn that noise down the delusion and reduce the agitation. Like you said, the associated dangerous behaviors. And then you can also use SSRIs, which is our general antidepressants, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that will knock out that foundation of depression. Mm -hmm. So patients with erotomania were also found to have structural brain abnormalities, such as heightened temporal lobe asymmetry with increased volumes of lateral ventricles. Now, the question there is, did that happen organically? Is that something they were born with? Or did the secondary diagnosis create environmental factors that then affected the structures. That seems to always be sort of the which came first, chicken or the egg problem in diagnosing. This particular study did not differentiate whether this was with primary or secondary. So we could be seeing, you know, what also is very similar to what we see in patients with schizophrenia. So it might be the more dominant diagnosis. However, there is another interesting theory, which was where I put a pin in earlier when you were talking about sort of when a male is impacted versus when a female is impacted and who they are interested in as their subject of erotomania. And Dr. Martin Brune, who is a psychiatrist at UC Santa Cruz, theorized in the early 2000s that some examples of erotomania may be explained in terms of evolutionary theory. He opined that the disorder is possibly 
probably a pathological variant of a specific sexual strategy that evolved under selection pressures of human survival adaptedness. So when you were talking about women are looking for men of higher status, they're generally older. I'm thinking of, okay, who can provide for me? Who can provide stability for my life? Those sort of things. And men are going to younger, who they perceive to be more attractive women. If fertile. that fertile, yeah, they're talking about fertility, who can carry on my seed, who can, who is young and healthy and can still have children. Dr. Brune says that the individual's thoughts translated into behaviors are then related to the pursuit of long-term mating and preservation of the genetic line. He uses this theory when he looks at forensic cases of erotomania showing up in men specifically. Additionally, he theorized that the client's delusional misinterpretation of perceived signals from their interpersonal and social surroundings stem from their poor reality testing. So reality testing is like the ability to see a situation for what it really is rather than what you hope it to be or what you fear it might be. It's really how good are you at knowing what reality is aside from your own misconceptions. That is fascinating because that reminds me of when you had come back from Reed Malloy's training Mm -hmm. about, was it psychopaths or sexually violent predators or or was it specifically rapists? No, it was, um, it was psychopathy. It was doing psychopathy assessments. So can you give a bullet point on what that was? It was about that psychopaths can be more sexually active because, isn't it because since they are missing the part of their emotional functioning to actually be in real relationships, they have to find a different way to spread their seed. And it usually comes out. Am I, am I saying that right? No. Yeah, you're right. This was 10 years ago because I was pregnant when I went to the training. (laughs) (laughs) Baby brain. So yes. Thank you for refreshing my memory. Yes, that course was specifically on that, but the idea with adult men who sexually assault women, adults, is, yeah, that there is some sort of evolutionary theory to that where they're trying to have as many sexual partners as possible. It's sort of theory, and then it kind of mashes into, well, is this a cognitive distortion of theirs? Is something that they're sort of believing? So it's in between all of that That stuff when we talk about the why. Yeah. So how does this turn to violence when it comes to the intersection into true crime? Yeah, because I can't imagine they're all violent. Like every erotomaniac acts out violently. No, I think it like a lot of high-functioning delusional disorders, is there are cases of this that we're just never going to hear about. Right. Because it never rises to that level. And, you know, where someone is actually acting out and where do you draw the line? There can be people who are erotomatically fixated on celebrities or people and write thousands of fan letters. But if nothing dangerous is ever said, is it going to reach what we would consider a threshold of threat and risk assessment? Right. Right. Yeah. So as we get into the cases of erotomania, sometimes do result in criminal or violent behaviors. And most of the time, of course, We see the worst of the worst, which then turns into crimes of stalking, assaults, murder, and attempted murder. Right. So how does a delusion cross over? And I think it's really interesting to look at what Dr. Chris Mahandi has had to say about this. And he's, we've talked about him before. 
He's a forensic psychologist, expert in the area of threat assessment and stalking cases. I think Lenora and I talked about some of his work because she works closely with him and they end up doing a lot of media stuff together. And what he says is that what most often happens is it ends up turning violent when the stalker with erotomania perceives that the subject of their infatuation has somehow damaged the fictitious relationship. So to me, this... I automatically think of Rebecca Schaefer, like the second she did that movie that was just a tad bit sexual and her stalker was not having that because that did not live up to what his vision of who she was and right. who he had been you know, the girl what, next door up until that yeah, time, right? Yeah. What the relationship was, boom, like that's when he decided to do what he did in taking her life. So it's it's either that situation or Dr. Mahandi says that when the stalker realizes that their affections will never be reciprocated for whatever reason. So he assesses that this is basically a deadly trigger that is steeped in delusion and narcissism. So the narcissism piece is that quote, if I can't have you, then nobody can, or I'm going to now possess you by taking your life. And so that's why we end up seeing just the the planning, the showing up, the shooting the person. Like there, there's no like kidnapping and drawing this thing out. Really with these high profile cases that we see, it is just this person has decided they they stick to their mission and their plan and they're not even thinking about the aftermath or what happens to them. I thought this was really interesting because it's very similar to what we see in violent interpersonal relationships or domestic violence type relationships, intimate partner violence, where it gets to that level where the victim terminates a relationship and then the perpetrator is like, nope, there's no way. Like you can't leave me. I can't live without you. It's like that ultimate possessiveness, that ultimate ownership of another person. In these cases, yeah. you know, it's it's very sad because other family members, bystanders, other love interests, there are other people that can be either targeted if they just happen to be there. Like when we talked about in our episode about Dave Navarro's mom, her very good friend was there. Was it her friend or her aunt? I think she was a friend, but Dave considered her an aunt. Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, she was yeah. killed as well because this was his mission and he went over there to kill her. So I, I think this is really interesting when we look at the overlay of IPV and some of the mindset that's happening. And in both, that narcissism piece is just such a factor in this, aside from the delusion. Yeah, I think this is something that is just absolutely fascinating because for anyone who's listening, if you've ever had the experience of being in a relationship with a toxic or a malignant narcissist or even a covert narcissist, it can be really, really difficult. The gaslighting, the manipulation. And so I'm not trying, I'm not letting anybody off the hook. And certainly I'm not letting anybody off the hook who commits a crime or commits violence. I do think it's important to understand that these things don't generally come strictly out of an organic place. But what you're, you just pictured or what you just presented, actually, the way you described it is this unbelievable, desperate fear of abandonment. Yeah. So that happens in people who don't have delusional disorder, right? Oh, sure. If I can't have you, nobody can. And I'm going to take out everybody that I feel is threatening my safety. And I'm in such an, an impulsive state right now. I can't possibly even slow down to see what's going to happen to me as a result of these crimes I'm going to mm-hmm. commit or these behaviors I'm going to act out. I just think it's fascinating. And do we see those fears of abandonment with narcissists? Because I was thinking it was more of just this entitlement of 
I'm entitled to this. Yeah, but remember, clinically, that always comes from something. Mm. Like you don't, people aren't, I mean, there probably is some organic structural issues in people that are developing in the cluster B, or what we used to call the cluster B area. But when we talk about how a narcissist develops, that narcissist developed because they figured out very early that they actually were less than. And they had to create this elaborate defense mechanism. So sometimes the defense can be, you know, I don't really care about you abandoning me. But many times, like if you if you keep getting abandoned by the people that are your narcissistic source, then you have nothing Mm -hmm. to draw your energy from. So, yeah, that fear of abandonment may be perceived by the narcissist in a different way. But that's a whole other podcast. But no, that's great. That's great. So it's. It's both and instead of either yes. or. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully everybody followed us. I felt like we were just hashing something out with each other. <laughs> that, Sorry. That's, good. that's, that's good. good. Welcome to our lives. We sit Hi. and talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> if you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So should we get into some cases here? Yeah, but without going too far into it, we got some really famous ones I think that we should cover. Yeah. Just as pretty good examples. Let's touch on these. One of the most famous cases is that of John Hinckley Jr., the man who attempted to assassinate then president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, in 1981. And Hinckley's erotomania was focused on actress Jodie Foster. He became obsessed with Jodie Foster after watching the movie Taxi Driver. And when Foster attended Yale University, Hinckley moved to New Haven, Connecticut and stalked her. And while it was clear that he was fixated on her, it does not appear that he experienced ideas of reference as we had described earlier. There's conflicting information regarding whether or not he actually had two phone conversations with Miss Foster, as he has claimed, quote, he said, over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. So, This is kind of echoed in a case that I'm going to cover in a second, but maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but this does not follow the exact formula that we talked about it before. Not that it has to be exact, but thinking that the object of their interest is in love with them first, like just automatically having this idea. This feels like I'm going to make her notice me and love me and hopefully fall in love with me because nothing else has worked. And I think a lot of these cases end up being like that. It's, it's more of like the obsessed fan. Right. So he's erotomanically fixated, but he hasn't necessarily mm-hmm. been misinterpreting cues from his environment as an interest shown by Miss Foster at that time. Sure. Okay. Sure. So another example of someone who had another additional diagnosis, several diagnoses, was Mary Margaret Ray. She's deceased now. She stalked and was fixated on both David Letterman and Story Musgrave. So this is an example of secondary erotomania because she was diagnosed with schizophrenia as well as the fixed delusions of these two 
individuals. Story Musgrave, yes, uh, a very distant relative here. Margaret Mary Ray experienced a relatively late onset of schizophrenia during her first marriage following the final birth of her four children. During the investigation of her background, following several interactions with the police and medical providers, it was determined that multiple close relatives in her family had also been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Just very, very sad, maybe not because of the late onset, they weren't aware of how intense the illness was. She became convinced that she was in a relationship with David Letterman, going so far as to claim that her three-year-old son was his. And after finding out where Letterman lived, she stole his car, kept coming onto his property, breaking into his house. She was arrested a total of eight times over several years for trespassing on his property and other counts as well. She claimed she left cookies and an empty Jack Daniels box in the foyer of Letterman's Connecticut home. For some reason, that was significant to her. Okay. Why she needed to do that, not really sure. (laughs) Following her release from hospitals, she would cease the medications that were prescribed to her. She would not be compliant with her meds, which would immediately lead to an increase in her symptoms again. So eventually she turned her interest to former astronaut Story Musgrave, going so far as to pose as a reporter in 1994, where she was then able to get through security and interview him while he was in Houston. Following a number of restraining order violations, Ray eventually served time in a Florida jail for trespassing on Musgrave's property. She claimed that she and Musgrave were writing a book together stating, I love Dr. Musgrave. I would die for him. He is a man of integrity and intelligence. Unfortunately, she committed suicide in quite a brutal way. A few years later, she had become homeless and she laid herself down on uh, railroad tracks in front of an oncoming train. Very, very sad into a, a, a very sad life. Yes, yes, definitely. And just the, you know, accounts of David Letterman trying to be as kind as he could because of her mental illness, you know, knowing He really that. did. I mean, he kind of made it into some light jokes on his show, but he never identified her. Right. And it would always be like the top 10 list of like changing my security codes so that again somebody can't break into my house, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting to put it out on television because how is that feeding into her, you know? Right. But from what I understood, there wasn't really like calls to press charges or be harsh on her criminally and things like that from him. So a more recent case, which I wanted to spend some time on, is the case of Christina Grimmie from 2016. And Christina Grimmie was a 22-year-old singing contestant on season six of The Voice. She came in third that season and was really on her way to becoming a very popular recording artist. And the way that she got her fame prior to The Voice was YouTube, of course, right? Because kids that are teens in the mid-20-teens know what they're doing on YouTube. (laughs) And she started posting herself singing covers of other songs and was very successful, like three and a half million subscribers. She was also a gamer. So she was kind of known for that in that world as well. And a devout Christian mom, dad, brother who would go on the road with her. He played in her band, just a wonderful family, wonderful story. And in 2016, she opened for a band called Before You Exit. And they were a local pop rock band from the Orlando area. And they were doing a meet and greet after their concert in Orlando at the Plaza Live, which is like kind of a 
mid-level concert venue. And she was shot dead by an obsessed fan as she went to basically give him a hug because he said nothing. And her brother said, you know, that was kind of her way to break the ice. If a fan felt intimidated or didn't know what to say, she would just open her arms to give him a hug. And he fired five shots, hitting her three times. Her brother immediately tackles the shooter and the shooter takes out a second gun and kills himself. Her brother, I just can't imagine hearing his account of this. He said, I wasn't afraid. There wasn't any time for fear. It was my first instinct to tackle him. So that's what I did. And the suspect who I'm not naming on purpose here, he doesn't need any airtime, traveled from St. Petersburg, Florida to attend the concert and the signing. It was about a two and a half hour drive. He was 27 years old, lived with his parents and his self-proclaimed only friend, which I believe was interviewed extensively by police. And there's recordings out there of the interviews. Very genuine person, had known the family for a long time. He was actually friends with the perpetrator's older brother and then became his friend. But he described the perpetrator as a loner, as very socially inept, a complete introvert, and said that he grew up in a somewhat abusive household. He said that he heard accounts of the mother beating him with a frying pan, throwing dishes at the boys, broke his brother's arm on one occasion in some sort of altercation that happened at the home. And then just previous to the shooting, his mother, and I mean, within a couple years, not like the week before or anything, but his mother died of an accidental overdose of aspirin. And supposedly the perpetrator, the shooter had a lot of mental turmoil over this because his relationship with his mom was so conflictual that he had told her on occasions that she should kill herself. So it was ruled accidental, but there was kind of this very complicated feelings about it. And then his dad got into a new relationship after the mother died and The cops were at the house all the time for domestic violence incidents, a lot that were fueled by drinking on both parties' accounts. And so he would just retreat into his bedroom. But there was obviously a lot of trauma and and chaos going on around him. So his friend that had been interviewed by police after the shooting talked about how he got him a job at Best Buy where he worked. And there was a lot of difficulties with him interacting with customers. He was never rude. He was always polite and fine with them, but they moved him around to several positions because he was just really inept at engaging socially with the public. So finally landed him working at the Geek Squad kind of in back rooms, working on computers. And the friend talked about how he even expressed concerns about his friend's behavior to their manager, but it wasn't something that was impacting the job. So there really wasn't anything that was done at the time. He attended college. He did a few years there, but dropped out. And his friend says that he felt like he couldn't spend enough time on his video games at home. And he was becoming obsessed with, wait for it, Scott, playing World of Warcraft. It happens. I have to get a dig at you every time I can. Yes. But not only was he obsessed with his video games, but he knew that his friend was becoming obsessed and fixated on Christina around the beginning of 2016. Like quickly within months, the interest then became infatuation and then full-on obsession. He even said that his friend started to change his appearance physically and He said that this was purposefully so that he could then become a YouTuber in order to get 
the attention of Christina. So he went and got LASIK eye surgery so he didn't have to have glasses. He got wisdom teeth removed. He got hair plugs. And then he went on a diet where he lost like 50 pounds. So really put a lot of investment into changing himself. And then on top of that, there were more cognitions that were developing because he started to change his religious beliefs. So previously he had been an atheist and then he started talking about Christina in very religious terms, talked about how he, if there must be a God because she existed and claimed to have seen God in her on his computer screen. So I don't know how much of that was, was this a hallucination he was having or is just in line with the theme of what's going on? Or some of that, what we we're talking about before, misinterpreting something that's coming across. Right. Did he start feel like, did he start to feel that she was communicating with him via yes. her videos? Yes. And so the friend specifically, while being interrogated by the police, you know, they said, did he say he was like going to go plan and meet her and that they were going to get married and like that sort of stuff? And he said, well, yeah, essentially. And he said that she was his soulmate. So it, his friend did try to challenge the delusion a little bit with him and say like, hey, you know, this is unrealistic that you and the star are going to get together. And the shooter, he was really offended. He said, if you're not going to be supportive of me, then I can't be your friend. And on his last day of work, the day before the show and the shooting, he went to work. He returned some magazines to his friend and then he grabbed him by the shoulder and said, I love you, brother. I'm tired and I'm ready to ascend. Which, where do we hear that language from? Heaven's Gate what else is sent? A lot of, it's very cultish, right? Think of boys in front of their computers in their mom's basements. Oh, incels. Yeah, mm. that's, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's up for interpretation, right? But that's definitely language that incels use. So I don't know. There was nothing else. He he destroyed his computer hard drive, so they couldn't access that. But there's nothing else to indicate any incel ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we talk about that in the presentation that you and I do on incels. The idea of body dysmorphia mm -hmm. that is really strong True. in the community and of like you have to have the things about you can do through plastic surgery and right. that there's been an increase in men's plastic surgery that has to do with incel idealization of yeah. the male figure. Right. So I love this quote that Chris Mahandi has about how magnetic celebrities can be for these folks. He says, quote, that's their gift to humanity. And unfortunately, with unstable people, that gets kind of rolled into their way of thinking as more of a relationship than actually exists. The fantasy can very quickly morph into a cure, if you will, for their sense of isolation and desperation and hopelessness. So it, what he's saying there is that a celebrity is like the perfect answer to somebody who is experiencing this. And if they start fixating on, oh, I'm going to be in this relationship with this magical creature, basically. Then it fixes all of my problems. I can feel better about myself. I have a reason to live, something to focus on. And it's it's the ultimate unattainable, right? You talked about that at the beginning when we looked at how males and females look at their, their objects of interest, and it's always the unattainable. Now, you know, I'm sure people kind of remember this story, but probably not details because this really got overshadowed I don't even know if that's the right term. It was a horrific, tragic weekend 
in Orlando because the next night was the Pulse nightclub shooting. And then it was the same weekend that that child was killed by an alligator at the Disneyland Resort or the Disney World Resort. So talk about just a tragic, tragic time and place. Christina's parents are doing wonderful, wonderful things with the Christina Grimey Foundation. It supports families who've been victims of gun violence. And what their aim to do is to get support to families within 72 hours of an incident happening. And their goals are really to reduce the long-term consequences of trauma and get the families to be able to focus on healing rather than all of the other logistical stuff that happens. So they've been able to pay for temporary housing for families whose loved one was lost in their home. So they don't have to stay in the house where the shooting happened or helping a single mother with the cost of childcare so she can start working again. Helping families with bills that allow them to get on their feet again in big ways. I mean, like halting evictions, repossessions, paying for groceries, all of those things. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to their foundation. It seems like they're doing really wonderful things. We made a donation earlier today since we were telling Christina's story and please consider donating if you can. I'm so glad you shared that particular story and how wonderful that they were motivated in that way to provide support to other victims. I think that's fantastic. But it's also, I would also say that everybody grieves in their own way. And if there are people who can't take action, that's okay too. And in fact, here's an organization that will help you. But everybody's expression of their own process of grief is unique and personal and should be reserved from any kind of judgment by people who are not in the mix at the time. Totally agree. Yeah, that's what Lenora and I were talking about. She's like, I'm in a place where I can help. I can fill out a restraining order, you know, piece of paper for someone if they are not up to doing it. And I'm just glad that there's people like that because everyone handles it differently and we need to lean on those that can help us out. Yeah. Well, for another academic example that reads like a thriller, I want people, I want to encourage people to see the link in our notes for an open source article by Dr. Reed Malloy regarding a man with secondary erotomania, comorbid with schizophrenia, and other various personality disorders. And he tragically murdered a plant manager and two police officers after being rejected by the object of his fixations. The subject had developed the delusional belief that his target was in imminent danger at her place of work and required his rescue. So Dr. Malloy uses this article as a case example of what we call triangulation, where in his words, rage toward the rejecting object is displaced onto a third party, which is then perceived as impeding access to the victim and may be at risk for violent assault. Very interesting to remember. Ooh, that's a good case. Look it up. Yeah, it's very easy to read. It's a couple of pages and you can link right to it from our resources. I want to take like almost a right-hand turn into the area that sort of really relates to us and what we do. I mean, I think we try and be very careful about making flippant diagnoses of people that we haven't had any interaction with. Mm -hmm. And I know that that is a big thing in politics because of what used to be the ruling against psychiatrists publicly diagnosing people that was only specific to psychiatrists. It was never actually specific to other clinicians. And then there's been the argument of maybe someone does need to be ringing a bell of warning when a person in a very influential position is acting in a way that expresses 
expresses danger sure. to people, to a large number of people. So this case is related to that. And then I want to be very careful about how I frame this because this does involve one of our colleagues, someone who is much more experienced than we are and has been around for a long time, but really was not appropriate in his summations. The example I want to give is Anita Hill. And for the younger people who don't know who Anita Hill is, Anita Hill testified before Congress in 1991 about the sexual harassment she said that she had experienced while she was an aide to Clarence Thomas. Judge Thomas was a Supreme Court nominee at the time. So these kind of explorations of his history were part of what is always done. Of course, we have all lived through this most recently with Kavanaugh mm -hmm. and the allegations against him of, of sexual inappropriateness and assault of a young woman that he was in college with. But Judge Clarence Thomas had been Ms. Hill's supervisor at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Despite her accusations not meeting the mark for our understanding of the motivations and drives behind erotomanic fixation, Dr. Park Dietz asserted to the Senate Judiciary Committee that Hill may have erotomania and that this was the basis for her accusations. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm just going to take a moment <laughs> to digest that. And is it weird that we're hitting like the trifecta of prominent forensic psychiatrists, psychologists I know. today? I, I, I always want to call, I always want to call him St. Saint, Saint Malloy or St. Reed <laughs> because he's just such a wonderful man. I mean, you know, when you go and do trainings with him, you get this sense of warmth and passion uh -oh. for his work. Uh -oh. Do you have a rotomania, Scott? I don't. I don't. I don't. I swear I don't. He doesn't call me from a block number at night and talk oh to me. Oh my God. That's so funny. No, I, but look, Park Dietz is also well known and has done amazing things. Yes. But. This and, warrants an apology, I believe. Yeah, there's this thing. And then there's the other thing that we've talked about before, the Andrea Yates case. But yes, so Park Dietz is a forensic psychiatrist and a criminologist who is consulted or testified in many of the highest profile criminal cases in the U.S. His study of threat and risk assessment has resulted in his creation of the specialty of workplace violence prevention, and that's been really essential for maintaining workplace safety. He's well-respected for his observations and expert testimony on criminals such as Betty Broderick, Jared Lee Lofner, Joel Rifkin, Arthur Shawcross, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Kaczynski, William Bonin, the DC sniper attacks. A lot. Goes on and on. Yeah, he's he's definitely was the guy for a long time. Right. And there's been some things that have fallen through the cracks, like he got mixed up on the stand when he was being cross-examined, where he was testifying, but then thought he was referring to his own research, but it was actually like the plot line of a Law and Order episode, something right, like that. Right, that he was like a consultant on or... Right. So, so getting, the contrast, a couple things mixed up. Yeah. Look, there's a contrast in his expertise in this particular area that's really disturbing. And noticeably, it's missing from his Wikipedia page. So... Good for hmm. you. I like... I did not know this, by the way. And thanks for bringing that up. Because yeah, there's a lot as of if Anita Hill needed any more bullshit. I know. Her, Seriously. So. What, a, what an amazing, amazing individual... And she's doing great things to this day. You know, she has not let that incident define her, although I'm sure it was incredibly difficult. And she was also the target of a book by a 
pundit, a, a, a real right-leaning pundit, David Brock, mm. who wrote really a, several smear books about women. He wrote a terrible one about Hillary Clinton as well. Ugh, what is and, that about? What can we diagnose that as? Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, David Brock came forward later, many years later, and apologized for a lot of what he wrote and said that he was heavily influenced by the environment that he was in. And he was basically just hired as a political hit man to write these things. Oh, so, but that's, like, that's, you know, once something's okay. written, you know, yeah. and it's in a book and someone picks it up 20 years from now, are they really going to go and figure out that it was a, all a piece of crap writing? I don't know. So anyway, I wanted to give a good example of a case study of something that I have worked with. I have de-identified this. So while everything is congruent with what actually happened, I'm not providing any information that would allow any listener to be able to identify who this individual is. But we got a case referral for an individual who is a background actor, or what we call out here. We call him background because it sounds a little less demeaning than extra. You know, it's a person who is a performer, doesn't have any lines, but they're in the background of a scene in television or a movie. So this background actor believes that he is getting messages from a celebrity that is in the movie that he has been hired on as a performer. It was a movie being shot in Europe with a major American female star in her late 20s, very attractive at the top of her game. In the script, the actress engages with one background actor or character, a doorman that she simply acknowledges with a head nod. There's no dialogue at all. The scene requires several takes, so repeating it over and over again. Open the door, walk through, pick up your mail, nod to the doorman over and over and over again. So it requires several takes. It's completed. Production moves on to the next scene. The background actor becomes fixated on this interaction. And within days, he now believes that the music playing in the coffee shop he frequents is delivering messages to him from the actress. Later during the evaluation that I performed with him, he denied that it was the actress's voice, but it's rather that he knows she is guiding his interpretation of her meaning through the lyrics and the drum rhythms within the music. Ah. So he followed her back to Los Angeles. He broke into one of her homes and he lives there for several months. It was actually an empty house. It was oh. being renovated, but the gardeners and the construction workers thought that he was one of her employees and was staying in the house as sort of a caretaker. Yeah. So despite a hospitalization on a 5150 hold, restraining orders and legal hearing for the restraining order, his beliefs are persistent and untouched by medication. It's later discovered that he was prolonging the restraining order hearings, believing that the actress would be present at one of the hearings and he'd be able to straighten everything out with her. Oh, sure. So he was actually, exactly. He was doing anything he could to create an opportunity for a face-to-face -face interaction. This client had no history of violence. He claimed no interest in any kind of violence or retribution, had a history of one relationship, average student, not very successful in other areas of his life, although a very, very talented painter. And he had decided not to pursue it as any kind of career, like didn't actually even see the amount and depth of talent he had as a painter. He eventually returned to his home country and we've had no further communication with him and he's made no more attempts as that we know of with that actress and she stays in touch with our our unit to manage other issues very interesting case yeah with as much as you can say how did he present like what what kind of just non-clinically what kind of vibe did you get talking with him so interesting uh, a particularly attractive individual okay like disarmingly attractive and 
really held it together Mm. for about 10 minutes. Mm. And then once you start poking at the delusion, it all kind of falls apart and we get very upset yeah. And and uh, make accusations against us as evaluators, as people that were trying to provide support and treatment. Mm-hmm. But no weirdness in the first few minutes. It's more like, what does your day look like as an as a citizen of the US? You get up in the morning, you interact with a number of people. Maybe you're stopping to get coffee, maybe you're stopping to get gas, you go get groceries. Your interactions with the majority of people are never more than like 30 seconds, right? right. Yeah. So a lot of people don't have to hold it together in that way for very long. Sure. And this is one of the things that we see in doing evaluations, especially for court competency or maybe when someone is a potential for guardianship. I always say, just give it time. Just keep asking questions. If you keep asking questions, you're going to see this rise to the surface. Very, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So if this is more prominent in women, what is with these high profile acting out violent incidents? They're almost always with men, right? I mean, I can you think of any where there were female perpetrators? I'm probably missing one. There's probably got to be some that I researched. I mean, the one that we would see, and actually we get calls on this for the work that I do, is we will see women with fixations and erotomanic beliefs like mm-hmm. really all the all those bullet points we talked about and they will trespass like they'll mm. go and they'll sit in the yard or they'll mm-hmm. break into the house and put the celebrities clothing on or they'll take a shower lay in their and bed. make themselves a sandwich lay on the bed but then, and they may argue, but they don't get violent, even right. when they have comorbid diagnoses like schizophrenia or another delusional disorder or personality disorder. Mm-hmm. But it just tends to be the the men can be pushed to acting out in violence, at least the big cases that we see. And we have to also admit that, like, look, we have a particular lens, right? We're sure. looking at this. We're looking for crime. Right. So, again, there may be plenty that happen that fade or they get reoriented towards another person. Sometimes the interest will fade in that one person and they'll find another object to become fixated on. Right. I really think... It just men are more prone to violence when we look at crime overall anyway. So Right. And I I really do wonder if it has to do with drug use. So, I mean, there are more substances being used, cannabis being legal at dispensaries at very, very high dosages. Mm -hmm. That's going to affect people's disinhibition as well. So if somebody's self-medicating and not taking their prescription medications or they're combining the two, which can be even worse. Right. Or just self-medicating for whatever mental illness is underlying. Right. So, I mean, that this was the thing that took me completely by surprise as we were reaching all of this, because I was immediately thinking, well, you know, you can take someone with no mental health history. And if they do meth consistently for a few years, they're going to have some mental health symptoms. Oh, yeah. They're if, eating if away not, at their frontal lobe. Exactly. If not full on psychosis if, yeah. by that point. So it made me look for drug interactions. And there was a case that came up that for people with a history of resistant long-term depression that had been put on a certain SNRI, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, the brand name being Effexor, the chemical name being venlafaxine, they found that it caused the emergence of erotomania in a very severely depressed woman. 
The quote here is, remaining on this dose for a further four-week period, she acutely developed erotomanic delusions alleging that the prescribing doctor was a past sexual conquest of hers from school and that he was in love with her. This belief disappeared with the decrease of the dose of the venlafaxine to 150 milligrams over a five-week period and the depressive episode being partially remitted or responded. She continued taking 150 milligrams of venlafaxine for the following two years. So 150 milligrams of venlafaxine is pretty much the standard dose. You work your way up to that from the starter dose. Yeah. But people can go up to 450 milligrams. So fascinating. It is fascinating. So was the potential for delusional disorder or erotomania there all along? And she was just completely without energy or volition or motivation due to the the predominance of her depression. So the depression got pumped up and disappeared so quickly mm-hmm. due to the chemical interactions and she's disinhibited. I don't know. It's fascinating. Though. It is. I mean, what an interesting case study and what what is the interaction with the chemicals there. I don't know. Right. Wow. And also, let me say, venlafaxine is a great medication. The nickname for Effexor is side effectsor because the side effects are pretty, mm-hmm. pretty yeah. strong. However, for people that have what we call like catatonic depression or lethargic depression, this is an activating antidepressant that can be very helpful. So I'm yeah. not dissing venlafaxine. This was one example of one person who had this particular reaction. As I will always say, do not alter the your course of medications unless you have consulted with right. your doctor. So please no, don't anyone interpret this as not taking that medication. No. Consult with your doctor. Not Dr. Scott, a different doctor. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about some movies or TV shows yeah. where we've seen this. We covered so many stalking depictions in our stalking episode, but one that I thought was the most accurate depiction of erotomania is a French film. It's called He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not. It gets from 2003 and it stars Audrey Tauteau from Amelie. Tattoo from Amelie and Da Vinci Code. And she's a young art student and basically leads all of her friends to believe that she's in a relationship with a married cardiologist who's about to leave his pregnant wife for her. And so what starts off as kind of a, what you think is a sweet romantic French film quickly turns into crazy town. Um, And she starts to spiral after one particular incident where she's convinced herself that they're going to run away to Italy together and she goes to the train station and waits and he never shows up. And it's from that point, the film is kind of through her lens where you don't really know what's real and what isn't and what she's telling her friends and what's just in her head. And then it sort of rewinds and starts from his perspective. So you see what is true and what is not and what the mixed signals are or the misinterpreted signals are that she's fitting into her narrative and her delusion. Right. So it it's good. I think it, it really depicts, you know, how convincing they are with their friends, how when they're challenged that they're holding to the delusion, the coinciding depression that's there. And then of course, turns a little bit, you know, dark with some acting out behaviors, but I thought it was a great depiction. It's on Amazon Prime. But I love also the idea that it gives both perspectives. Right. 
so that you actually see objectively what's happening for the other person and how everything's been misinterpreted. There's another couple of older films that are really great. One of them is called The Fan. There are several movies um, by that name. This is one that was a thriller and sort of uh, a cheap thriller at the time in the 80s, but it's actually really good. It's with Lauren Bacall and Michael Bean, and she plays a Broadway actress who is sort of reviving her career that used to be a movie career, which is very much what Lauren Bacall's life was at the time. Mm -hmm. She had been a huge star in the 40s and 50s. And in this film, he is a record salesman who is just an obsessive fan of hers and goes to see all of her shows all the time and has seen them multiple times and follows her obsessively. And he writes her over and over again. And he really does believe he's got this relationship with her. And they don't go into sort of any kind of hallucinations or misinterpretation, except that he has this idea that he's her peer in a way. And he even goes so far as to write letters that are almost reviews of her performance. Like, hey, this is the 23rd time I've seen the show, doing great. You need to work on your dance steps at the end of act one. I saw your Shanae's weren't so good. Very interesting development of his obsession. Wow. Of course, it turns into like a a murder mystery and there's a lot of crazy jump scares that are really good, but very much worth seeing if you can stream it. I smell watch party. Yes. Well, (laughs) if we're going to do watch party, my choice would be another one, which is Play Misty for me. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing film from the 70s with Clint Eastwood and the recent, recently sadly deceased Jessica Walt who you will recognize as Lucille Bluth from Rested Development. She was a major talent and an actually uh, really stunning young actress that did a lot of different things dramatically when she was young. And this movie was really one of the first of its kind to present a disorder such as erotomania or borderline personality disorder. That's where you kind of kind of a little bit of an overlap or a comorbid diagnosis in watching it. But it was the first of its kind to present this in a woman. And it was a major precursor to thrillers such as Fatal Attraction. So like I said, her character also presents with features of borderline, but really with an emphasis on this psychotic belief that they were meant to be together. So yeah, we should put this on the list for a watch party. Okay. That sounds like a great idea. I know that's one of my mom's favorite movies. Did you ever see Nurse Betty? I did not watch Nurse Betty. No. Nurse Betty is Greg Kinnear. And why am I blanking on her? Nurse Betty, nurse blonde actress. Renee Zellweger. How could I forget that? Renee Zellweger is wonderful. And we watched her in Chicago, right? Yes. And Morgan So this is, and it's interesting. She has a psychotic break after PTSD from a breakup. At least I think it's a breakup. It might've been, no, yeah, it was a breakup. And she becomes obsessed with Greg Kinnear, who is an actor on a soap opera. Oh. And this goes a little bit beyond even erotomanic. She does have an erotomanic fixation with him. But she actually believes that she's the character Nurse Betty, and she drives cross country to be with him. So some great uh, examples out there that are not necessarily bullet point diagnoses, because as we've illustrated, this is a complex disorder that may be the result of a number of things that could be either related to each other or not related to each other. I'm smiling because aren't they all complex? 
They are all complex. <laughs> Sometimes you just want some run-of-the-mill anxiety. I know. Just <laughs> give me some good old anxiety. Well, great job. This was a good one. Very, very nice. Fascinating. I can't I, wait. Well, we're going to have to, I mean, we got to, I know we don't have to get vocal because you're in training again, but we've got to pull this back in for another get vocal. Maybe we'll, yeah. we can, after another episode, we can have it because I think a lot of people will have questions. I think so too. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I was going to say this afternoon, but whenever you're listening to this and hope your Thanksgiving went well, if you chose to celebrate that and we have the holidays coming up. So everybody just breathe deeply and enjoy. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.